0: From Hollywood, I'm Martin Grove, welcoming you to our Screen Dollars podcast, Box Office Autopsy. Today's special edition of Box Office Autopsy looks at the month of October and some of its most promising wide releases. Joining me on the line now is one of Hollywood's best-known and most widely quoted box office experts, Paul Dergarabedian, who's analyzed weekend ticket sales for nearly 30 years, the last eight of them as senior media analyst for Comscore. It has been a fantastic September, even a marvelous September, at least if you're Disney and Marvel, uh, thanks to Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. And I think we're looking at what could be an overwhelmingly good October. I agree, Marty. This
1: has been quite the post-summer period at the box office with Shang-Chi, as you mentioned, uh, breaking Labor Day records. Uh, and with just an incredible performance that I think spoke volumes about the importance of having great content in theaters. It's all about the movies. It's about the movie-going experience, but it's the movies that bring people in, and it's the exhibitors who keep people there and coming back for more.
0: Well, you know, Paul, over the years, the distribution executives that I've talked to and relied on for help and information have all said privately... It's a product-driven business. And they were all correct. That's what it is. If you have the product, people come and see it. And if you don't have the product, then they don't come. But what happens is that Wall Street and the media sometimes make the mistake of saying, well, gee, you know, they're worried about the Delta variant. They're worried about whatever it might be. But it's actually, they just didn't have a movie that they did want to see. Well, I'm so glad
1: you say that, Marty, because it's the ebb and flow of the box office has more to do with the movies themselves than any other factor. And it's been proven week after week. And like you said, if the content's there, you know, if you build it, they will come. That's a much belabored, belabored and overused cliche, but it's so true because when you had Shang chi open $94 million for the four-day Labor Day weekend, obliterating Labor Day weekend records, and then also Free Guy uh, from 20th Century Studios, obviously part of Disney. Free Guy dropping 7% in its sixth weekend. And let's remember, Shang-Chi and Free Guy are theatrical first, and that's why I think they're they're enjoying this long-term playability with Free Guy over 300 million globally, and Shang-Chi over 300, now at this point, probably over
0: 325 million million dollars globally as we record. Yeah, and Paul, that's in a world where so many people have been saying theaters are closed internationally, COVID is ravaging abroad, uh, and so forth, but but those worldwide grosses are growing, and clearly it's a product-driven business no matter where you are on the planet. And for the month of October, it's going to begin, I think, on a very good foot, because you've got from Sony and Marvel... Venom, let there be carnage. So uh, I think that when that arrives to start the month, October 1st, and and, and remember, Sony made what I think was a smart move, taking it off of October 15th and saying, hey, business is so good, let's get in there early and get more of it.
1: And that's so different than what we've seen before, where studios uh, a year ago were moving films back further and further in the hopes that the industry would come back. Now the industry has come back in a really strong way, and that vote of confidence by Sony moving Venom up to October 1st is a great way to kick off what you perfectly describe as, I think, a, a blockbuster month for sure.
0: Well, and with, with Venom, I think there's the advantage as well of a PG-13 rating, not an R rating, so that those uh, uh, under-17s who love this kind of product are able to, uh, to buy a ticket, Uh, as opposed to sneaking in with a ticket to something else. Uh, Venom, of course, being a sequel. uh, Tom Hardy is coming back as uh, Venom. And the 2018 original worldwide was just over $856 million. So this is uh, a big film to follow in the footsteps of a big film.
1: It's a big deal. And I think audiences are really psyched for all these big titles on tap for October.
0: And you know, Paul, looking at the tracking on on Venom, the strongest tracking is for men over 25, but just about two points below that, you've got men under 25. So it's very, very strong with with, with men uh, of all ages. Less strong with women, but still, you know, respectable scores. So you know, we could see, I think, some very good business, and uh, we'll be waiting, of course, to see what ComScore and you report for the for that weekend. It'll be yeah. a, a big number.
1: That's one to look out for. Michelle Williams also in Venom.
0: Yes, quite and uh, and c- uh, coming back from uh, from the first film. Correct. Um, so uh, the nice thing about October is that it's not all about Venom uh, the way September was all about shang chi Uh, just a week later, there is a very small film, not really, (laughs) and that's the 25th Bond episode, No Time to Die, coming from MGM and Universal and, of course, Eon Productions, Uh, and that is Daniel Craig's last appearance as 007, and we're going to talk about that, but just before we do, just to sort of set the mood, here's Ray Fiennes as M uh, wondering where is Bond let's give a listen come on Bond Don't do this. There will be nothing left to save. That was Ray Fiennes. He plays M, of course, in No Time to Die. So, Paul, this picture is uh, one that has been so highly anticipated. It's bounced around release schedules, you know, for the last two years, I think. You know, uh, driven by the pandemic issues. Uh, but it's finally surfacing, and it sure looks like it should be a box office uh, giant. Well, where the hell are you,
1: Bond? Indeed. <laughs> I think uh, you know, film fans and just those of us who love the James Bond series of films have been waiting for this movie for so long. No Time to Die was one of the first films to move off the release calendar in reaction to the pandemic. It was originally set for April 8th of 2020, and then it moved to November of 2020, uh, November 25th, and then it moved to April of 2021, and now I think it's it's almost here, and it's not going to move, and it's going to be only in theaters, No Time to Die, October 8th. We can't wait. I think this one's going to have a a great debut and very long-term playability, a lot of pent-up Demand for 007.
0: And Paul, even though it's not going to be here until October 8th, it is, as you know, opening in the U.K. on September 30th, so you'll be reporting the international numbers on it.
1: That's right, and that'll be a good indicator. And of course, U.K. is the perfect spot for Bond to debut, but this is just a movie that so many of us have been waiting for. It's finally almost here. U.K. gets it first. We're all very jealous. But thank goodness Bond is finally almost
0: here. that Paul, that UK uh, opening is going to be at over 700 cinemas, which will make it the biggest release of the year in the United Kingdom. Black Widow uh, had been the biggest to date, and that was about 650 uh, theaters. So this is a big deal over there.
1: Very much so. And it's just an iconic series of films uh, ongoing for... 60 years or so, I can't think of another franchise that is still as viable, beloved, uh, and anticipated as the Bond franchise for this many decades running.
0: It definitely is a picture that I'm looking forward to seeing, and uh, I don't say that about too many films, to be, to be totally honest with you. So uh, uh, this is one that I do want to, uh, to see. And also, you know, it's probably worth pointing out here that if you want to see this picture, you've got to go to a movie theater because it is not streaming.
1: That's right. And I think for Bond production team, Eon Productions, uh, it's been a very important uh, part of the DNA of the Bond franchise. These have always been theatrical. I can't imagine Bond going straight to streaming or anything like that. Uh, although in the very early days of television, there were some uh, Bond. There was Bond content, I believe, a Casino Royale
0: live. Uh, yes, oh, so that, that the original. It was a CBS uh, television network production, and it was an American Bond. And that that was the first deal that Ian Fleming did the first time that he sold rights, and then he, he was unhappy with it, and he didn't want to sell the rights to the Hollywood movie studios, and it took a long time to work out uh, the arrangements to make it happen. Uh, and I think the, the short version of this story is that uh, Ian Fleming's attorneys told him that to establish the value of his books uh, as part of his estate they needed to do a movie deal to, to create, you know, the, the real numbers that would give them that valuation. And he did it, and uh, that's why we now have 25 Bond films.
1: Isn't that amazing? Look at your knowledge of the history of this, Marty. It's incredible, too, because if you think about it, I believe it aired in October of 1954. Barry Nelson yes,
0: Bond. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Right? <laughs> I, I did, you know, just, just thinking back on this, because I am something of a, of a Bond historian, uh, uh, Sean Connery, uh, who was so marvelous as, as Bond, well, it was not the first choice, but it was an expedient choice because he was affordable. And, uh, and of course, you know, he, he was a Scotsman, not an Englishman, and that, that uh, made a big difference, uh, to the point where Fleming later... In in one of his upcoming books, uh, after uh, Dr. No, the first of the Bond films, Fleming wrote into the storyline about Bond that his father was from Scotland. <laughs> so that, in a way, explained the Scottish accent. So
1: uh, <laughs> That's such great history, because this is such a long-running, not just movie franchise, but obviously the books, uh, the characters, iconic Sean Connery, for many of us, our favorite Bond. But I will tell you, Daniel Craig, an amazing and inspired choice for Bond. He's been absolutely spectacular in the role. And uh, I hate to see him go. I presume this is his last outing as Bond. But what a way to, to really put a cap on just an incredible run for Daniel Craig as James Bond.
0: And Paul, I think that what we're going to see are a lot of moviegoers... Heading for cinemas to see this movie because it is Daniel Craig's last time as Bond, and of course nobody knows yet who is going to be the new Bond. But uh, uh, even we don't know that. So uh. that's right. But look, there are uh, certainly not only is not only a new Bond on the horizon, but other pictures in the month of October. And as we get to the fifteenth of the month, mid-month, it's perfect timing to be thinking Halloween. And that gives us Halloween Kills, uh, the uh, uh, next episode in the rebooted Halloween series. It goes back, uh, of course, to 1978. Jamie Lee Curtis uh, still starring and still uh, uh, tremendously uh, wonderful in the role. Uh, This picture uh, has been... uh, great first-choice tracking uh, for younger women and younger men, uh, typically uh, the uh, audience for horror films and certainly classic horror films. Uh, so, uh, so we're going to be seeing that. And just, again, to put us in the uh, Halloween spirit, uh, let's take a look at this uh, scene. It starts very innocently uh, with some kids on a swing uh, at a playground but uh, it gets uh, scary. Let's uh, take a listen.
1: Hey, what are you guys doing out here? It's Halloween. We've been trick or treating. Are you alone? There's a creepy man in a white mask.
0: Where? And he keeps like trying to play hide and seek with us. Where did you see him? Look!
1: Oh my God! Run! Go home now!
0: Door. No, come on <coughs> a moment or two from halloween kills definitely scary uh, this one is rated r so uh, you you got to be 17 or older to uh, uh, to see it well we definitely love our horror
1: movies uh, as moviegoers and the movie theater is the greatest place in my estimation, is see a great horror movie, the electricity that's created in the air. And while often, as we've even spoken in the past of, that a PG-13 rating can generally get you a bigger audience, no question that with a really well-made horror movie that if you can amp up the, uh, <laughs> the I don't know, the intensity, uh, the violence and the gore and all that stuff that people can see a horror movie for, when they're rating you can really push the envelope when in the right hand, that can be extraordinarily effective and very potent at the box
0: office. Well, in the case of Halloween Kills, uh, an interesting wrinkle. Universal uh, announced uh, that they are also going to stream it day and date uh, on Peacock, which is the Comcast uh, NBC Universal uh, streamer. And uh, that uh, uh, it will be interesting to see if that takes away. but I'm not sure that I'd want to see a, um, a horror film alone <laughs> at home in the dark.
1: <laughs> yeah, especially with you know the, the one of the scariest villains or you know characters in a horror movie uh, in the horror movie world running around outside <laughs> your house. It's pretty incredible and, and you know, in the hands of uh, Blumhouse, they have reimagined this franchise in such a authentic way, and having Jamie Lee Curtis there, all the better. She's just amazing as Laurie Strode, and what a knockout of a franchise. And I think, even though it's going to be available at home, you're going to have a lot of people wanting to see this in a theater about two weeks ahead of the actual Halloween holiday on October
0: 31st. Uh, yes, and and it's smart of them to open uh, a couple of weeks before the actual uh, date of the holiday because uh, Halloween is a, a a holiday where people go out trick or treating, adults go to Halloween parties. Uh, uh, hopefully um, <clears throat> in the in the uh, pandemic era you uh, you were still able to see people doing that maybe a little more so this year last year or not. But, uh, but in that case, this movie will be playing as the prelude to Halloween, and, uh, and that certainly is, uh, is very encouraging. I think,
1: I think it's a great strategy. And look, Michael Myers is a fictional character that people just can't get enough of. I do know that there's another movie set for a year from now in the Halloween series called Halloween Ends. And so I don't know if we're to take that at its word, because none of these franchises ever really
0: die, but... The killers, you know, the villains never die. Just when you think they're dead, uh, you you see uh, that that, uh, eyelid opening again, you know. That's
1: right. So I never believe it when, you know, just because it's called Halloween End, except for October 14, 2022, I'll believe it when I see it, especially if these make, this one makes a lot of money, and then these both make a lot of money at the box office.
0: Well speaking of making a lot of money at the box office, we have one other huge film for October to talk about and that is from Warner Brothers and Legendary Entertainment. It is the sci-fi adventure epic Dune. And Dune is a film that's it was shot in IMAX. It's the kind of film you want to see on an IMAX screen if at all possible. Uh, in fact, the director Denis Villeneuve uh, refused to screen it digitally at the Toronto Film Festival. He said this film was just not meant to be seen uh, streaming. It was meant to be seen in theaters, and he didn't care. It didn't it made? Um, Dune, ineligible for the People's Choice Award at the uh, Toronto Film Festival, because you had us both screened digitally and in theaters to qualify, but he he didn't care. Uh, The picture got a seven-minute standing ovation uh, at its premiere at the uh, Venice Film Festival, and that has sparked a lot of Oscar talk. And before we talk about its uh, awards prospects, let's uh, just set the mood again by uh, looking at the surface of the planet Dune. Oh, well, you can't see that? Well, just imagine it, because as the music starts now, we're looking at the surface of Dune. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low.
1: Walling over the sands, you can see spice in the air outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes.
0: Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. What's to become of our world? That was a quick look at Dune, and uh, Paul, this is a picture that seems to loom not only as a Box office success, but also as an award success. Do you see that ahead? Absolutely. Denny
1: Villeneuve is one of the greatest directors of you know in the modern era. Uh, I, I I rank him up there with the greats. His movies: Prisoners, Sicario, Arrival, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which was a much uh, underestimated and misunderstood film both in terms of the movie itself and more so the box office. I just thought that was a fantastic film. Dune is a movie that, sh- that is just meant to be watched on the big screen. It, I believe, will be available on HBO Max, as Warner said, for all their films coming out this year. But I think this will be a really good test of moviegoers how much they love movies on the big screen. So, in other words, if you're a fan, if you want to see the latest from Denny Villeneuve and you can see it in the movie theater or have the option at home, Are you going to go out and see it in the theater? I hope so. That's how this movie is meant to be seen.
0: Well, well, exactly. And and even though it will be there uh, on HBO Max, uh, it's just hard to imagine that even, uh, you know, people who have uh, giant-sized media screens at home, uh, it's just not the same thing as seeing it in IMAX or another premium large format. Uh, The tracking on this picture is... Very good already. I mean, it's, it's still four weeks out, so there's a, there's a long way to go and to grow. But right now, the tracking, as we speak, is best for men over 25. It's, it's a number above 50%, so it's a very nice number. But what also I think is encouraging is that all of the other demographic groups, younger men, younger women, and older women, are all in the mid-40s. So, we're looking at what could be maybe a Four Quadrants movie for Warner Brothers.
1: I think it could be. And if you look at the cast Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Stone Skarsgård just an incredible cast. I just think this is going to really be a test of that ability for a filmmaker to inspire fans and moviegoers to go to the movie theater. Even though this film will be available on HBO Max, who knows, Marty? Maybe people, if I go see in the theater, I fall in love with the movie. I'll come home and maybe watch it again on HBO Max. But first and foremost, I got to see this on the big screen again. Dune. This is, this title has had a quite the cinematic history, and you know, based on the novel by Frank Herbert, and I, it could not Dune could not be in better hands. And with Denny Villanueva and his production team and this cast,
0: yeah, I think I think we're looking at a big picture there, and and as well at uh, a huge uh, success uh, ahead, most likely. For, uh, for Venom and for uh, No Time to Die, and for Halloween Kills, which is tracking great. So a, a very strong month. The, you, you touched just now on something to, that we should uh, talk about briefly, and that was the idea of someone seeing it a second time uh, streaming. Because, as you know, uh, over the years, uh, people used to go back uh, to see a movie they loved. Uh, sometimes people would just get back online and see it again. Uh, right there, or perhaps the next day. But now streaming does tend to uh, to cut into those second weekend repeats, and, uh, and you know that's not the best thing in the world for the business.
1: Right. And I think that's, again, why so many of the filmmakers love that theatrical first release with, let's say, a 45-day window. That seems to ensure the greatest chance of long-term playability and also, if you have FOMO, that fear of missing out, and you want to see a movie like Free Guy, guess what? You gotta to go to the movie theater. Can't just watch it again at home. Yes. So I think it's really going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. I think week in, week out, we're learning that theatrical first is best. Maybe ninety-day windows, not you know those those days I think are gone, but a window nonetheless. I think is essential for any theatrical film to be successful over the long haul, plus the perception of prestige. And it's not just a perception, it's a real thing. The prestige and exclusivity of a theatrical first run, there's nothing like it. It was true pre-pandemic, it's true now.
0: Well, you know, over the years we have seen that even when there was a 90-day window, pictures would do the bulk of their business the first three weeks and then a little more in in the fourth week. Uh, and after that, it's a trickle of of ticket sales. So uh, I, I don't know that, you know, dramatically shortening or cutting in half the 90-day window, I, I don't think that that's, uh, you know, a, a horrible thing. I mean, I understand that theaters would prefer it, but I don't think it takes that much away. I mean, we've just seen shang and how well it's done in September. As we're speaking, it's it's going into its fifth weekend, but it's basically done its business. It's closing in on around $200 million now. Uh, a very good money for these for these days. And, uh, and, and without suffering from not having had a 90-day window.
1: Yeah, I think, and also, too, uh, an extraordinarily long window. Doesn't it, it doesn't help theaters to have a movie in there, you know, taking up a screen in an auditorium if you're not filling those seats. So it's better to move it out of there actually, and then get another hot movie in, and just keep that cycle going. Forty-five days, lean and mean, get the films in there. Like you said, they make the bulk of their box office in those first, you know, two three weeks anyway. And then when they and the thing is, a theatrical first movie that does well has more value when it hits the small screen. So that big screen is complementary and additive for the small screen, not adversarial. I just think it's a win-win for all the studios, and we saw Disney recently decide they're going to go theatrical first, and that's pro- and then look at Shang-Chi and Free Guy, they're reaping the benefits, Disney, of those theatrical first-style releases.
0: Well, look, Disney, I think, was very smart to uh, to put an end to uh, day-and-date streaming this year. Yeah. Warner's, I think, was very smart to say, look, starting next year, we're not going to do it either. Uh, So uh, these all augur well for uh, the future of exhibition. And one of the great things uh, to point to is that whatever happens at the box office, we will find out about it by your Comscore reports uh, day and date on the uh, uh, Sunday of whatever weekend it is. And I look forward very much to that and to talking to you again here on Box Office Autopsy. Paul, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Great to be here. A true honor to be with you, Marty. You're a a legend and your knowledge of the business and uh, just your enthusiasm is inspirational to me. So thank you.
0: You're welcome. We'll do it again. And thanks to you out there for listening. And uh, please join us again next week for another Box Office Autopsy. Time now for our film flashback look at what was happening in Hollywood right around now, way back then. Let's set today's time travel dial for September 24th, 1939. If it weren't for Carl Laemmle, Hollywood might never have had movie stars. Laemmle who died September 24, 1939, at 72, came to America from Laupheim, Germany, in 1884. He was managing a men's clothing store in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, in 1906, when he became fascinated with Nickelodeon parlors, where people would pay five or ten cents to view moving images in machines. In a few years, he was distributing movies, which led to producing them through Independent Moving Pictures, IMP for short, which he founded in 1909. IMP's offices were in New York, and its films were shot in Fort Lee, New Jersey. At the time, independent producers like Lemley were fighting the Motion Picture Patents Company, which controlled Thomas Edison's patents for cameras and projectors. Lemley was one of the first indies to challenge the Edison monopoly. He also had his own ideas about marketing movies, which were quite different from what early studios like Biograph and Vitagraph were doing. In those days, studios didn't reveal the names of people seen in their films because they knew actors would demand higher pay if they became well-known. At Biograph, one actress with a big following was known only as the Biograph Girl. She was Florence Lawrence, and after Lemley brought her to Imp, she became famous as America's first movie star. Lemley also created the first movie publicity stunt. After signing Lawrence, she dropped out of sight in the spring of 1910. Imp started rumors that the Biograph Girl had been killed making newspaper headlines everywhere. Then Lemley ran ads with Lawrence's photo proclaiming we nail a lie. Not only wasn't Lawrence dead, she was about to make her next movie, The Broken Oath, for Imp. To prove just how alive and well she was, Lemley had Lawrence appear in St. Louis, where the stories of her demise began. When fans pulled at her coat ripping off some buttons, Lemley told the papers they'd torn off her clothes. Lemley continued acquiring new stars, including biographs Mary Pickford, then known only as The Girl with the Curls. Imp grew and in April 1912 merged with five other indies to form the Universal Film Manufacturing Company with Lemley as president. It evolved into today's Universal Pictures. In March 1915, Lemley opened Universal City Studios on 230 acres of farmland in L.A.'s San Fernando Valley. Before long, he was selling studio tours for five cents admission, including a boxed lunch. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another box office autopsy next week. In Hollywood for Screen Dollars, I'm Martin Grove.